0: Welcome to Casting Hope, the sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Um, We're continuing our fall sermon series called Resolute. Uh, tenacious faith for tenacious times. Uh, these are tumultuous times, but it helps us to know in this moment, uh, that what we are experiencing is actually nothing new. In fact, the apostle Peter tells his church, he says, when hard times happen, when times of upheaval come, do not be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. And we at hope want you to know the same thing. We want to say the same thing, uh, the tumult that we are experiencing feels surprising. It feels strange. But as we look across God's story, and as we look across even um, our own near history, uh, it's not the exception, but it's the norm. And so the question is not, will we ever experience upheaval in this fallen world? The question is, how do we hang on to God and to his promises? when we do experience upheaval? To answer this question, we've been looking at key moments um, in God's, uh, in in scripture, in the history of God's people, times when they went through extraordinary times of upheaval. And last week, uh, we looked at the Exodus community. Uh, This week, we are going to fast forward to the exile community. So in 586 BC, God's people were exiled to Babylon and God's house was torn down by Babylon and God's city was destroyed by Babylon. But 40 years later, Assyria takes the stage and they wallop Babylon and then they tell God's exiled people to return, to rebuild, and even to reestablish their worship. All of this really in the span of 60 some years. Uh, in just one lifetime. Talk about tumult. Talk about upheaval. Think about it. If you were my son's age, who's age 11, you would have been born in Jerusalem. You would have gone to youth group at the temple. Uh, You would remember Babylon attacking and destroying your city and your church, kidnapping you and your family against your will. This means you went to high school and college in Babylon. It means you you spent most of your adult life Uh, In Babylon, as a stranger, never quite comfortable, never at home, never feeling safe. And then suddenly in your 50s, here comes another war. And then life as you know it changes. A new king tells you and your family, you can go back to where uh, you came from, back to your childhood home. And by the way, you can also freely worship God at his temple. And so you pack up your belongings and you move back. Now, some of you hate moving and you hate change, but this is on a whole other level. So God's people move back, they rebuild, they resettle, and in walks Haggai, a prophet, someone who speaks for God authoritatively. And he has an authoritative word for them and for us this morning. We're starting in verse one of chapter two of Haggai. I'll read. You can listen along. This is the word of God. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. So he's Haggai speaking to everybody, every single person now. God says, who is left among you who saw this house talking about the temple The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer and Holy Spirit, empower this sermon. And open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus and treasure Jesus, the true temple. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Well, whenever people ask me how I'm doing, I usually steal a line from Charles Dickens. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And I, this is an idea that I stole from a letter I read in the beginning months of the pandemic. The best of times, the worst of times. The best of times, the past six months have enriched my life in so many ways. It's slowed down my my life. It's made me appreciate the simple things that God has given me and I could go on. Uh, it's also the worst of times. I mean, do I even need to make a list or give examples? It's been a rough Six months and things just seemingly get rougher and rougher. It's like I'm on a plane that has hit turbulence, and you know what happens when you're on a plane that hits turbulence. At first, you act like nothing's happening. You start, you you like, you keep reading Your Economist and you keep sipping your ginger ale, and you don't look anywhere. You sort of, you're showing everybody that you're calm, you know, you're used to this. But after a while, people start to look around and they're like, Are you feeling this? Are you feeling this? And right about now, I feel like people are, um, are sort of texting their loved ones and grabbing for the oxygen. And, and look, I'm desperate for the turbulence to stop. And usually it does, but it feels like the plane is just lurching and dropping more and more. See, these are the best of times and these are the worst times. Of times, A perfect example of this dynamic uh, was our communion service last Sunday. I don't know if you were there, but in my experience, it was worshipful. It was joyful. It was amazing to see many of you in the flesh. It was amazing to finally share in communion. And yet it was so sad. It was so sad. Here we are in a parking lot wearing masks, dispensing communion, like a combination of FEMA and Chick-fil-A. Uh, It was the worst Sunday ever. It was the best Sunday ever at the same time. And that's just one example. And we can think of, Our own examples, the best of times, the worst of times, extreme joy, extreme sadness at the same time. And this is what really is described for us in our passage this morning. God's people are so excited. Can you imagine to be worshiping again together in Jerusalem after a long exile? But God says in verse three of Haggai two, if you take a look, He says to His people, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The Jerusalem of their memory was glorious. The Jerusalem before their eyes was like a ghost town. A couple of weekends ago, I went to Fayetteville, West Virginia, and you can hike to these ghost towns, these literal ghost towns scattered across the base of the gorge Um, at one time, not too long ago, really, uh, These were boom towns uh, because of the demand for coal. Now they're just abandoned. They're nothing but brick and foundations and rust. And this is essentially how Jerusalem looks and feels to God's people. And more importantly, this is how the temple looks to God's people. Beat down, junky, unimpressive, not worthy of God. Well, God essentially agrees here he says, essentially, yeah, it doesn't look like much, does it? In fact, Zechariah, the prophet, uh, he calls this moment the day of small things. It's small. It's unimpressive. The prophet Ezra, he gives us an amazing detail about this moment. He says in Ezra 3, and just listen along or you can turn there if you'd like. He says in Ezra three, and I'm quoting, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Why? Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid talking about this very moment. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though, many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout. From the shout of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. And the sound was heard far away. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a time of great rejoicing. They are finally returned. It was a time of great weeping. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This might be how we feel about church today. Some hate it. Some love it. Some have memories and can only cry. Some have hopes and can only rejoice. But either way, it's a co mingled sound. And maybe it's a co mingled sound within your very heart. Because God's house feels like it's in shambles. And so, what does God have to say to them? And what does God have to say to us today? He says two things in Haggai 2. He gives them an assignment. And he gives them an assurance and they needed both. And we do too. Let's take a look. So first the assignment, if you look at verse three, God admits that things are bad. Now listen, God, we serve a God who never spins the facts, but in verse four, God says two very important pivot words. He says, yet now, yet now, isn't that what we want to hear today? Yet now, yet now, yes, things are bad. Yet now, yet now means that there's something ahead for us. Yet now means that there's hope yet now means there's something for us to do. There's a purpose. There's work to do. In fact, God says yet now. And then if you scroll down verse four, work, he says, get to work. And this work is to be done in two ways with strength and without fear. Three times, God says, be strong. To rebuild the temple, God is saying, will require all of their strength. They must leave everything on the field. Uh, When I ran track, and many of you maybe did as well, you would run multiple races in a meet. And so every time you ran a race, you always wanted to leave gas in your tank after the race. But here God is saying, spend it all. Spend it all as, as if this were the only race you have. Work with all of your strength. Leave it all on the field. Now, we today might not actually be building a literal, physical temple. But because Jesus is the true temple, and because in Jesus we are the living temple, in whom the Spirit dwells, the church, we too have work to do paul says in ephesians 4 he says that god gave leaders to the church why why to equip the church to equip the saints to equip every single believer in god's church to do what for the work of ministry i'm quoting scripture to equip the saints for the work of ministry which paul defines later as building up the body of Christ. We are, Pope Church, builders, not consumers. All of us, no matter how much the church looks in shambles, God says, get to work. Get to work with all of your strength. Build up the body of Christ. A pandemic doesn't change that. Turmoil doesn't change that. Your newsfeed doesn't change that. If anything, it intensifies it. We're called to work with all our strength. All of us. But we're also called to work without fear. Notice that God has to say in this text, fear not. At the end of verse 5, fear not not Uh, he has to say fear not why because it assumes that they were afraid and it assumes that we too are afraid when we get to work there's plenty to fear those days there's plenty to fear these days as god's people but when we anchor ourselves to our circumstances we will be seized by fear and we will work with fear but if we anchor ourselves to the God of hosts, which is actually the title of God time and time and time, I think five times in this small passage, God is described as a God of armies, the God of hosts. What Alec Moyer, the Old Testament prof, uh, prophet uh, professor says, uh, describes God's omnicompetence. Yeah, God is omniscient. God is all knowing. Yeah, God is omnipresent. He's ever present. Yes, God. Yes, God is is all powerful. He's omnipotent. But God is also omnicompetent. He is the God of hosts, the God of armies. And when we anchor ourselves to the God of hosts, fear of circumstances will begin to lose its grip on our hearts. Friends, regardless of circumstances, whether they are ideal or devastating, The church has work to do. I'll say that again, regardless of circumstances, ideal or devastating. The church has work to do, and it's hard work. Otherwise, God wouldn't have to say, be strong and fear not. But what a privilege. Just think about that for a second. What a privilege. We have an assignment today that connects us to something way better bigger than our own stories we are connected to god's mission christopher wright he says god doesn't have a mission for his church god has a church for his mission god doesn't have a mission for his church god has a church for his mission And God's mission has been rolling since the fall and it will not stop until Jesus returns. It's a mission to rescue, to reclaim and to renew all that we broke with our sin. And we're told here to get off the sidelines and into the field, all of you. And so this week, I I just want you to pray this simple prayer. God, what would it look like for me to become a builder not a consumer. God, what would it look like for me to get off of the sidelines and to spend everything and leave it all on the field? But that's not all God says. He says work. He says fear not. He says He says, uh, be strong. But he does not leave us to do this in our own strength. He says work, and take a look at the text. He says work to be sure Look at the end of verse four, for I am with you. That four is everything. It connects the command to work, the imperative to work to the power source of that very work. It reminds us that we do not work hard in order to gain intimacy with God. We work hard because we have the only thing that matters intimacy with God. I'll say that again because some of us have the idea, the mistaken idea, that we must work hard to get intimacy with God. But the Bible is more subversive, it's, it turns that upside down and it says, no, no, no. By grace, you have intimacy with God, though you don't deserve it. And with that grace, you are now compelled and empowered to spend your life. You have everything you need, intimacy with God. Therefore, you don't need anything from anyone, which is the greatest liberation. And now you can spend your life for the sake of the life of others. Did you hear that? That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that we are rescued by Jesus so that we can now bear our cross and spend our lives for the sake of others. We don't work hard to build up the church so that we have intimacy with God. We have it. Therefore, we work hard. God says, I am with you. Not I might stick with you. Not, not, yeah, maybe if you work hard, I'll be with you. No, he says, work for I am with you. And he proves it in this text by pointing to the past, by pointing to the present and by pointing to the future. He affirms his presence among his people across time. First, the past God drew near. If you look at verse four again, God says, remember, I was with you in the Exodus. I saved you by grace. I showed you my presence. What makes you think that I will withdraw from you now? And then he talks about the present. We just talked about this. Towards the end of this verse, uh, verse four, you see him say, work for I am with you. And then at the end of verse five, take a look. My spirit remains in your midst. Verse five is one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible. The holy God, the God of armies. Says to sinners, I remain. The God of armies says to you, says to me, I remain with you. He says to hope, he says to the church i remain with you you would think god would wait before he gave this promise or until his sinful people cleaned up their act but no this is the god of grace who remains when we don't deserve it and then third He gives us a promise of the future. So he says, I was with you. I am with you. And then he gives us a promise about the future. He says, I will be with you. And he talks about this, this, this temple that will be built, that will be better than the one that they're grieving right now. And let's not forget what the temple is. What is the temple? The temple is how God shows up. The temple is the mediating presence of God. It's how God moves into the neighborhood of sinners. The temple is the house of God. It's his presence. It's his felt presence among his sinful people. And so God is talking about a time. Look at verse six and following a time when he's going to shake things up. He's going to shake things up. And listen, when God shows up in power, the world shakes, just, you know, do a Bible study on the world shaking and the heavens shaking and every single time you're going to see God showing up. And so God is promising a day when he will shake things up. That's a biblical fact. He will shake things up and then he will build, he will build his house in a new powerful way. In this verse, actually, he says three things will happen on that day. It will, it will draw in all of the nations. Number one. Number two, it will be filled with his glory. And number three, it will result in true peace. Now, for the original audience, this promise gave them real hope. Hope that God's house in shambles would, in the nearish future, be better. And this happened historically. Herod's temple, the temple Herod built uh, for God's people, was built later. And it was pretty great. People visit Jerusalem to this day to check out some of the remnants of this amazing temple. But guess who visited Herod's temple as a young kid, 500 years later after this text, who felt quite at home at this temple, so much at home that he would eventually see himself as the true temple in flesh it's Jesus John says Jesus tabernacled among us Jesus templed among us Jesus is the house of God full of glory, full of peace and Jesus If Haggai promised a future temple that would draw the nations, Jesus is the true and perfect temple, isn't he? I mean, when Jesus was born, who came bearing gold? As this prophecy promises, the Magi, the outsider, the Gentiles, the nations came streaming to Jesus, the true temple on day one. And on Pentecost, his spirit fell on the nations and one day we will stand before jesus as a great multitude that no one can number from every nation from all tribes and all peoples and all languages and if haggai promised glory and peace would fill this house, then Jesus is the true and perfect temple. When Jesus was, was born, what did the multitudes, the hosts, the God of hosts that we've been talking about, what did this host say, proclaim when Jesus was born? Glory is what they said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Glory and peace among Those with whom he is pleased. And if Haggai promised a greater temple, then Jesus is the true and perfect temple. Revelation 21, verse 22 and following describes the day of his return, which is the day of of, of renewal. It says, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? Why no temple? For its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. Just let this verse wash over you. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Sound familiar? And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Listen, the only way we will work with radical abandon is if we first accept and are melted in our hearts by this assurance of radical intimacy. This is Eden restored. When when Adam and Eve walked without shame in the presence of God, what we're promised here in Revelation is Eden restored. The temple was an echo of Eden and a foretaste of that day. And that day is as sure as Jesus has risen. And he is risen indeed. We have a future hope. Have you accepted that? And if not, what are you waiting for? Have you accepted this gift of grace? What are you waiting for? It's laid on your lap for you to take. Take it. Trust Jesus, who invites you to a mission greater than yourself, who says essentially, work. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But this same Jesus gives you the only assurance you need in life. And surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. Friends, we have work to do. We have work to do. But we have the only assurance that we need. God is with you. He is with us. And he will never leave us. To the end of the age. And so God, we do abandon we surrender ourselves to your mission you called us to your church for your mission and we gladly partake thank you for your presence and your promise but that presence will never go away we pray this in jesus the true temple's name in whom we have confidence in whom the church is united and is a living temple by the Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.